Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahumma salli ala seyyidina Muhammed. Tıbbin kudubi ve devaiha ve afiyetin abdani ve şifaiha. Nurul abasari ve diyaiha ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahumma zıkna ziyarete beytek ve ziyarete habibek. Allahumma aleyhi ve sellem. Thank you. All right, Bismillah. So we're continuing with Imam Muhasibi, the book that never ends. Mashallah, it just keeps giving. So we are on this part where he says the following: "Qala rahimahullahu taala wa nafaalallahu biyahu bi'alumi fi darin amin." He says the following statement. <coughs> La yashabuhu thalathatu ashya Fahuwa aqlun makid Itharu ta'ati ala al-ma'asiyah Wa itharu al-ilmi ala al-jahni Wa itharu al-dini ala al-dunya Wa kulla ilmin la yashabuhu thalathatu ashya Fahuwa mazidun fi al-hujja Kafu al-adha biqat'in raghba Wa wujudu al-amali bin-khashya Wa badlu al-insafi bit-tabadhuli wal-rahma Okay. <clears throat> okay, so he said, know that every intellect that doesn't have three things is a source of deception, essentially. And every knowledge that does not have three things is only an increase in the proof against somebody. Okay? So he's going to continue with his nice little list that he has, mashallah, and these uh, back and forths that he has. So the first part is, every aql, every intellect that doesn't have three things, then it is a... Uh, it's basically going to deceive the person. They'll think that they're using their mind, but in the end, their mind is going to play tricks on them. And they're going to think that they understood something correctly, but they're not actually going to understand things correctly. It's a very brilliant thing, subhanAllah. So again, here he makes this distinction between aql and ilm. We talked about it a little bit last time. He makes this distinction between aql and ilm. Aql being the actual capacity to understand, and ilm being the knowledge itself. And this idea that someone could have knowledge, but they don't have the capacity to understand properly. So that knowledge doesn't benefit them. And even if they have some level of capacity to understand, if that capacity, the aql, is not accompanied by these three things, then it'll actually take them in the wrong direction. And we've probably seen this. Sometimes you see people, mashallah, they're very intelligent. And I don't, be careful, I'm not talking about learned. There are also many, many people who are very learned and they're not very intelligent. You know, they, they read a lot of books, they understand a lot of things, they memorize them, and they're just not very, they're not very intelligent. But then on top of it, you have people who are very intelligent, but that intelligence doesn't help them, works against them. So he's, he's trying to tell us, what are the three things we have to pay attention to them in order to not fall into this issue? Number one, that the person has to prefer obedience to Allah over sin. They have to prefer obedience to Allah over sin. Why again? Because we've talked about many, many times that in our understanding of the world, there's a relationship between the heart and the mind or the intellect. And if a person's heart is not sound, then their intellect will not be sound. So if they get in the habit of preferring sin over obedience, they prefer sin over obedience, then also they're going to have kind of problems also in the way that they understand things. SubhanAllah. It will, it will start to affect. Uh, and, you know, uh, we don't have to look very far. The world is filled, mashallah. The world around us right now is filled with plenty of people who you would think that they have a brain. And yet they have a complete incapacity to understand the most basic things that are right in front of them. 
And you're like, okay, over 11,000 people. Huge percentage of them children. Children being dying in ICUs and people dying in ICUs and all of these things. And they just still can't understand. And you're like, subhanAllah, you understood in so many other things. But right here, you can't understand. Because eventually, the person's heart is not in the right place. Catches up to their mind. The mind, this is why it's very... Uh, it's a very um, dangerous thing. May Allah protect us. The other thing that will affect this is if they have ithar al-ilm al-jahl. Unless they have ithar al-ilmi al-jahl. Means what? They prefer knowledge over ignorance. Also, you see this, right? Sometimes people who are very intelligent, they actually don't take learning as serious. Right? So they start to depend on their ability to understand. So I'm just going to go with my own opinion. I have my own, I have my own understanding on this. I don't actually need more information. But that's a bad habit of the mind. The habit of the mind has to be always I need to increase in my knowledge. And I'd rather have more knowledge about something than less knowledge about something. I prefer to be knowledgeable over to be ignorant. Right? And uh, so then <clears throat> this happens also, by the way, with a lot of religious teachers. They get kind of like, uh, maybe I should say we get, comfortable with how much we know. And then you get lazy about learning more. And always what you find in that is that then you see people making big mistakes. Because it's like, okay, you didn't have to learn anymore. Here's a mistake. Now you recognize you have to learn more. Hopefully, the person recognizes that. But they have to, we have to always be in the practice of preferring knowledge over ignorance. Right? It sounds like, at first when you read it, you're like, oh, that's a funny thing to say, right? But then when you think about it, you realize that it makes a lot of sense. And then he said, That they have to prefer their deen over their, worldly, over their lower life. They have to give preference to their deen over everything else that they have in this life. Because again, otherwise what happens? And you see this also in the community. Sometimes you talk to people in the community, and you're like, subhanAllah. Why is there so much effort in trying to get around this thing? <laughs> you know, it's like some issue in the religion, it's pretty clear. So much effort goes into getting around it. Why? Because the person wants to prefer something of dunya over deen. So we're trying to figure any way to get around this rule, any way to get around this issue, any way. Or you could just prefer deen over dunya, and the mind will stay straight. The mind will stay straight. And then he says, and three things. <coughs> If knowledge does not have them, then that knowledge the person has will only be an increase in the proof against them. Okay, so one of the things that we believe is that knowledge is not an automatic issue of salvation, right? Like knowledge doesn't, just knowing something isn't sufficient. Knowing something is the first step. What a person has to do after that is have to act upon that knowledge. So if a person increases in knowledge, but they're not doing certain things, then that knowledge becomes a proof against them rather than for them, right? It becomes a proof against them rather than for them. This doesn't mean ignorance is bliss, you know? Uh, Something like, well, then I'm just not going to learn anything. You think Allah doesn't know that? Uh, people, <laughs> don't play games with Allah, right? You play games with everything else, don't play games with Allah. Uh, oh, I'm just not going to learn then so that I'm not responsible. And Allah didn't know that you didn't, that you intentionally just didn't learn something so that you wouldn't be responsible? Of course, Allah knows that. Yeah, we're still going to be responsible. But three things, if they're not there, they'll, they'll actually make the knowledge a proof against the person. Number one, كَفُّ الْأَذَى بِقَطْعِ That's an interesting statement. So a ragba is like some desire that we have. Something that we're hoping for, some desire that we have that's external to this knowledge, right? So sometimes, maybe a person, ideally for us we always say knowledge is what? This is a test. Knowledge is what? Power. No, we don't say that. What do we say? Knowledge is light. Knowledge is light. And ilmu nur. Ilmu nur. Knowledge is light. So if we, if, if, oftentimes when people seek knowledge, they seek it for some sort of thing that they're trying to get from it. 
right? Like a worldly thing they're trying to get from it, not necessarily something they're trying to get for themselves from it, right? Like when we say that knowledge is light, what am I saying? I'm saying when I get this knowledge, I want myself to change. I want to be different. I want to look at the world different. I want to interact with people different. I want this knowledge to benefit me, right? I don't want this knowledge just so that I can lord over people. But he says, if the person doesn't cut off this desire in their seeking of knowledge, that comes, that's sometimes coupled with the knowledge, then what will happen as a result of that? They'll harm people. So he says that the knowledge has to be accompanied by this action of eliminating the harm that comes from it by not seeking other things from it. You guys, are you following the point? Following? Because it's too many words to say, subhanAllah, sometimes in Arabic it's like one or two words. They're like, how do you say this? The point is what? If people seek knowledge with a good intention for self-illumination and to help the world and so on, then that knowledge will be knowledge that's beneficial. If they seek that knowledge as a materialistic endeavor, just for power, and to seek other things from that knowledge, then eventually that knowledge will be a source of harm to other people, rather than benefit. So they have to control that raghba. have to control that raghba. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you could say that. Like it's kind of transactional knowledge, yeah. They're taking it for some worldly transaction. Um, and by the way, this is as simple as the intention shifts. Maybe you're doing the same thing. Maybe someone's like, I need to study business so that I can be really successful in business. And that's fine. That's a, good, that's a type of knowledge. It's beneficial knowledge. But what's going to make the difference is I'm seeking this knowledge of, of, of how to do business and stuff like that so that I understand better how to deal with people, how to deal with materials, how to deal with goods, how to structure the work that I'm doing to help my family and my community and so on. So now the, it's just a slight shift in the angle. And the slight shift in the angle makes all the difference in the person's life, in their family's life, in their community's life, in the barakah that it brings to what they're doing, and so on. Okay? So that's number one. Number two, al-amani bin al-amani bin That they have, uh, that this knowledge is accompanied by action, and that action is accompanied by khashya. Khashya is like a type of awe and fear of Allah. Okay? So if we were to use the business transaction again, one person, or business example again, maybe one person, they get this knowledge of business, now what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to act upon it. They're supposed to act upon it in a way that is accompanied by fear and awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one person will get that knowledge, they're like, if I do this, I can control this person and that person, I'm going to put this person in this place and control them in this way and do all of these kind of things and so on, and they have no fear about it. This person's livelihood, their family, their well-being, they have no concern about it. Someone else does it and they realize, okay, I'm in, I'm in this business, but I'm also, in being in this business, these people are rely, they're relying on me, and I'm relying on them. And we have a relationship that needs to be developed, and I should have concern for them, and they should have concern, like this is different. So now, what is it? They're doing the same action, but that action now has a type of fear in it. It's necessary actually that we fear Allah and a lot of things that we do. Because most of the things that we do have some kind of connection with other people. And we don't want to be doing these things and have a connection with other people in a way that is oppressing them in some sort of way and it comes back to us. So I have to be a little bit aware. Like maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to take me account for this. You know, maybe I'm going to be, maybe this is a big thing that I just did. Maybe, maybe I need to do this differently, right? So. The knowledge leads to action, and that action is accompanied by an awe and a fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the third one is Badlul Insafi Bittabaduli Wal Rahman. The third one, man, subhanAllah. Sometimes his expression is like, uh, I don't know how to. You know, we talked about before, like sometimes when you read an earlier book, it's not going to be as structured as a later book, right? So like someone who writes in spirituality in the second century is going to be kind of like more free-flowing than someone who writes in spirituality usually in like the 10th century because now the discipline has developed, the terminology has developed, all this kind of stuff. So sometimes when you go and you read the earlier books, 
you see expressions that you don't see in other texts. So it kind of uh, is an added challenge. Badl al-insafi bi wal-rahmah. So basically, they're going to this knowledge that they have is going to lead to some sort of justice and balance and fairness in the world around them because they're going to deal with that knowledge in a way that has tabadul and it has rahmah which means that it has a reciprocity and it has mercy so the knowledge that they have has reciprocity and it has mercy subhanallah it's a very interesting expression yes that that tabadul Huh? Yeah, like altruism. There's, there's like a mutual giving, mutual giving. You know, uh, <coughs> they're giving to each. Other. There's reciprocity, altruism, thinking of the other, right? So now they have this knowledge, and that knowledge they're gonna. It's not just for themselves, but they understand that this knowledge has gives me some sort of responsibility in this collective body, and so I'm gonna use it to bring some justice and, and evenness and mercy into the world around me. Okay, so mashallah, these are the three things. Three things for the intellect, three things for the knowledge, to make them sound. <laughs> he says, no, that nobody beautifies themselves by anything more beautiful than the adornment of intellect. And nobody wears a garment that's more beautiful than the garment of knowledge. Okay? They say, if someone wants to make themselves beautiful, as we ta- I think we talked about this last time, this idea of like the internal beautification is much more important than the external beautification. Or maybe that was in San Diego. Is that a San Diego thing? SubhanAllah. <laughs> Okay. We didn't talk about that here. I had a long rant on this somewhere. I think it was there. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Main point is internal beautification is much more important than external beautification. It's very clear. We've seen it, right? It's just practical in life. You find someone who externally MashaAllah, they've given a whole lot of emphasis to making themselves look beautiful. But internally, they're just ugly. May Allah guide them and us. <laughs> but internally, they're ugly. So no matter how externally beautiful they look, they're still repulsive. Internal beauty is much more important. Another person, maybe internally, they've done a lot of work to make themselves beautiful internally. And part of their internal beautification is going to have some sort of concern for their external. Right? Because there's a relationship between the two. But it will be a normal and, 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 and appropriate and well-balanced concern for the external. And so, then you, you might see the person. I don't know if I should say it that way. Beauty is different than attractiveness also. It's very important, especially for young people to understand this. It's a very big problem in American culture with the misunderstanding between beauty and attractiveness. Attractiveness is a matter of desires. It's not a matter of truth. Beauty is a matter of truth. So, something is beautiful because it's true, because it's right, because it's balanced, because it's correct, because it's sound, because it's pleasing to Allah, because it's pleasing to the Prophet wasallam. It doesn't matter how attractive something is, if it's actually displeasing to Allah and the Prophet wasallam, then it's an ugly thing. So when the internal beautification is much more important, that's the point anyways. So he's saying that nobody beautifies himself by something that's more attractive or beautiful than intellect and there's no garment they can wear that's better than knowledge again uh, part of the method of Islamic studies actually this is a place where many people falter in Islamic studies many many people falter I never uh, I wasn't it just came to me right now although we've said it before the method of studying Islam is meant to increase the person in knowledge and in intellect. Not just in knowledge. Most people in our community understand Islamic studies only to be an increase in knowledge. So you give them some pieces of knowledge and you did your job. No. You give them some pieces of knowledge and in the educational method and model, 
you give them also an ability to think properly. There has to be a development of the intellect alongside the development of the knowledge. They go together. You know, it's kind of like you have to memorize if you want to learn something. But the point is not to memorize. The point is to learn something and develop the intellect. Right? Um, I mean, that's too much of a generalization, but we, I don't want to get too far off topic right now. Uh, but the Islamic studies is meant to give the person knowledge, but also increase their ability to think properly, to understand things correctly, to analyze things appropriately, and so on. So the person then, the most beautiful thing they can do is they can adorn themselves with these two things. Because Allah, he says what? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not known by anything other than the intellect. And he is not obeyed by anything other than knowledge. Meaning what? As uh, you know, Sheikh Fuad would tell you in his theology classes, what are the theologians always doing? They're showing us why we believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not by the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay? Though that's part of it. Like if I read the Quran, I can see miracles in the Quran, I can see why I believe in Allah. If I look at the Prophet, I can see the Prophet and I can say, MashaAllah, the Prophet is a really special human being. So it seems to indicate that there's something else going on there. Yes, that's true. But also, why do we believe in the existence of God purely based on the mind? What is, what, how do we think about this thing so we can come to an appropriate conclusion, which is Allah exists? Right? So this is why he's saying, look how early this is. It's not just something that came into Islam later. Muhasibi is early. So he's saying Allah is known by the intellect and he's worshipped by knowledge. Right? So the intellect might lead us to the conclusion Allah exists. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember when, uh, before I was a Muslim, I used to sit and think to myself from time to time, when like the moments of heedlessness, when there was a lapse in it, which is very rare, Mashallah, the heedlessness was, was very steady. You know, and there's a moment of heedlessness lapses for a second. I would think to myself, if there is a God, it's going to be a bad situation. I mean, I go back to whatever else I'm doing. You know? <laughs> and then time would pass. And then eventually I got to the point where I was like, okay, I can accept the idea of a creator. All these people have different claims to which, which, which of these routes is the correct route. But why should I believe one over the other? Right? So this is fine. Allah exists. Why do I believe in Islam? Or why do I believe in Christianity? Or why do I believe in Judaism? It wasn't chosen at that point, right? And eventually you look at it and you say, okay, because the Quran has its evidences and this, there's a, it's actually the same book you know, that the Prophet them taught his companions. It's actually the same one and so on. And there's ways to know that and everything else. And then you're like, okay, alhamdulillah. So, but the aqlam can accept Allah. But then how do we worship Allah? We do it by knowledge. The Prophet ﷺ, his aqlam told him, Allah is one. Wasallam, the Prophet himself, before he's a worldly prophet. He says, Kuntu nabiyan wa Adam, what is it? Bainul ruhi wal jasad or something like this. Like I was a prophet when Adam was between the soul and the body. So the Prophet ﷺ was actually the prophet from the very beginning. But in the worldly sense, he wasn't a prophet until later in life, right? So before he was a prophet in the worldly sense, he believed that Allah was one. And he would go to the cave of Hira, as we know, and he would spend time in the cave of Hira, and he would be thinking like, Allah is one, and my people are not on the right way. But he didn't know how to worship Allah, right? Because how do we actually worship Allah? is by knowledge. The prophet told us that. Sometimes people are like, why do you do this, and why do you do that? And, even uh, earlier today, you know, I was talking to my son about, you know, we go to Umrah, don't forget, you have to cut your hair. He doesn't like haircuts. So, uh, and, and then my dad was there and he was like, why do you have to cut your hair? I was like, because the Prophet so I saw him, did it. You know, like there may be some, maybe there's some wisdom to it, we can get some, but in the end of the day, why do we cut our hair after we make Umrah? We cut our hair because the Prophet so I saw him, did it. But how do we worship Allah? We worship Allah based on the knowledge that the Prophet gave us. The Prophet gave us five prayers, we pray five prayers. We'd say this before that, we say, you know, someone might come and say, well, to me it makes more sense, the sujood be, should be before the rukur. I don't know why. Anyone, people always have all kinds of things, right? How do we worship Allah? We worship Allah based on knowledge. So this is, everything goes back to these two things. Develop the knowledge and develop how to think properly. Even our, in Islamic studies, by the way, they make this distinction. They make the distinction between 
the tools that are the, the types of knowledge that are tools and the types of knowledge that are goals. Okay, so like the seerah in a sense is a goal, tafsir in a sense is a goal, hadith as a as a study is a goal. If a person doesn't have the tools to approach those things, they can't approach them. So that's why one of one of our teachers when we were in Egypt used to tell us all the time, "You're here for a limited amount of years. Focus on the tools. Don't focus on the goals." Because you have to, now is your time of study, you have to get the tools. If you get the tools, you can spend the rest of your life reading tafsir. You'll be able to read it properly, you'll understand it correctly. But if you don't get the tools, then you won't be able to read tafsir for the rest of your life. You'll just get it wrong for the rest of your life. So there's an idea of, like, uh, of this, right? There's things I didn't know. Hassan al-Basri radiallahu anhu used to say he used to say that if knowledge was a form a form, like a physical form, right? Like if knowledge appeared in a physical form it would be more beautiful than the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky Isn't that beautiful? That if knowledge was a form it would be more beautiful than the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky I missed something else that I looked And Muhasibi he says in another one of his works, Methanul Aqli, Methanul Basar, Methanul Ilmi, Methanul Siraj. For Mala Basar Allahu la interfere with Siraj, Womanlahu Basarun, Bila Siraj, La Yara Mayahtaju Ilek. He said, and Muhasibi said that the analogy or the relationship between the intellect and knowledge is the following that the intellect is like vision. Like eyesight. The intellect is like eyesight. And knowledge is like a lamp. Okay? Intellect is like the eyesight itself, the capacity to see. And knowledge is like a lamp. So the person who doesn't have the capacity to see, the lamp doesn't do any benefit to them. This so again, I feel like this is a huge issue in our community. Huge issue. And this is why they always say, from the beginning of Islam up to today, and everyone dislikes it, especially if they're born, raised, and, and learned, and taught in America, they hate it. But they always say, from the beginning of Islam up to today, you do not learn Islam from books. You cannot learn Islam from books. You learn Islam from people of knowledge. Yes, will books be part of your journey? They'll be part of your journey. But if the only place you're getting your information is books, know that like, you're going to end up with all kinds of conclusions. You're going to be doing this thing wrong. Why? Because you took yourself, you have a lamp, but you don't have any eyes. The lamp is all over the place, but there's nothing to see with. But the the but when a person learns to think properly, then they the vision comes and they're able to see. And he says, and the person who has vision but they don't have a lamp, then they're not able to see what they need to see. So they have the vision, but there's no there's no light. So they need to bring the light, which is the knowledge, and then it, the, the combination of the two, they're able to see clearly. It's very beautiful. وَعْلَمْ أَنَّ أَهْلَ الْمَعْرِفَةِ بِاللَّهِ بَنَوْا أُصُولَ الْأَحْوَالِ عَلَى شَاهِدٍ عِلْمِ بِاللَّهِ وَتَفَقَّهُ فِي الْفُرُوعِ أَلَا تَرَى لِقَوْلِ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم مَنْ عَمِلَ بِمَا عَلِمَ وَرَّثَهُ اللَّهِ عِلْمَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمْ وَعَلَامَةُ ذَلِكَ فَهْمُ تَزَايُدِ SubhanAllah, it's so beautiful. He said, know that the people of Ma'rifah, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, built the foundations of their understanding of the spiritual states <coughs> upon the foundation of knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and having a understanding of the rules of Islam. Okay, so what is he saying? We need knowledge to worship Allah properly, right? We need knowledge to know who Allah is. It's true. We also need knowledge in order to put up the parameters for us as we journey in trying to know Allah deeper and deeper and deeper. And the people who spent their life in trying to do that, when they built this discipline, it's a, it's a, it's a part of Islamic studies, right? Part of Islamic studies is, what do we say about Allah? Theology-wise. Theology part of Islamic studies is, how do we worship Allah? in terms of physical actions, in our worship, in our business, and everything else. 
<clears throat> and a part of it is, how do I go from being a person who's here to being a person who's here to being a person who's here? How do I go to a person whose heart is roughly closed to being a person whose heart is a little bit more open? How do I go from being a person who's really incomplete to being a person who's more fully human? This is a big area, of, this, is, this whole book is about that, right? So what he's trying to say is the people who had a deep understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they base their understanding on a knowledge of who Allah is and the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and true sound knowledge of that and sound knowledge of what's allowed and what's not allowed in the teachings of Islam. They didn't just make this up because they felt like it. Uh, this is important from two directions. One direction, it's important because sometimes people will say, well, this knowledge is just like, you know, the Muslims, they took it from the Hindus. Wow, I've only been talking for 30 minutes. It feels like it's been three days. Okay. And some people will say they took this knowledge from somewhere else. You know, it's just like the Muslims, they had the Quran and the Sunnah, and then they met the Indian civilization, so they took from the Hindus, and they started to talk about meditation and dhikr and stuff like that. No, that's not where they took it from. They took it from their understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the way of the righteous people in our Ummah. That's where they took it from. On the other side of it, is that you'll have people who are very convinced that they can go on a journey of enlightenment and getting to know themselves and Allah and all this kind of stuff without any rules and without any guidance. They're just going to follow whatever feels good to them. This thing feels good to me, I'm going to do this thing. That thing feels good to me, I'm going to do that thing. No. It's not the way that it works. And everything has consequences. You know, one approach has consequences, another approach has consequences. The, the, SubhanAllah how like a big emphasis in, in our understanding is that if a person is going to try to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what they have to do is discipline their desires. But many people are trying to go on a path of spirituality by following their desires. This thing felt good to me, I wanted to do this thing, I wanted to do that thing, I did this and then I felt so much better afterwards and so on. What if you did it and you felt worse afterwards? Does that mean that it was bad? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It could be, but it's not necessarily the case. Like some people would say, you know what, I want to get closer to Allah and like everything, but just fudge is too early. And I'm going to feel... Eh. And I've been waking up for Fajr for the last week, and I just really feel really bad praying Fajr on time. Okay, but you still need to pray Fajr on time. Because Allah gave us a program. That program is better than anyone else's program. Right? So this is a very, like... If there's one thing I hope that we can take from what we're seeing right now around the world, is like, khalas, an al-waqt. The time has come. It's enough. Enough thinking everyone else has something that we don't have. Enough thinking everyone else's way is better. Enough thinking that our way is, is not sufficient. Deep down inside, many of us are that way. Deep down inside, many of us think that whatever the West has, it's better. Their knowledge is better. Their civilization is better. Their culture is better. Their way of spirituality is better. Their way of thinking is better. Their way of school is better. Their way of family is better. Many people think this deep down inside. Enough. Khalas. Kifaya. It's enough. It's not better. What we have is better. Not because we're necessarily better, but because it's from Allah. That's it. It's from Allah. And it's from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like, I don't... Enough. Oh, why do you guys do this? And why do you guys... Why do you do it? If you're so happy with what you're doing, Alhamdulillah, you're happy with what you're doing. Leave me alone. I'm going to do what I do. I don't... I don't just like, have... Like, and there, at some point... Alhamdulillah, there's, there's, hard, there's hardship, there's pain, there's all these kind of things. At some point, there has to be izzah. There has to be some honor, some strength. Like, this is our way. You know, like Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. I think that's the real reason why people love Sayyidina Umar. It's because Sayyidina Umar had honor. His first thing he says, that, you know, I was just listening to it today. What was the first thing Sayyidina Umar did radiallahu Look at the things he did. He became a Muslim. What did he do? First of all, by the way, he's not the only one that had honor. Sayyidina Hamza said what? When Omar was the enemy of Islam, everyone was afraid of him and so on, and then the whole story, his conversion, you know. Uh, it's a good story. Some people maybe don't know it, right? That Omar, was, Omar ibn Khattab was the enemy of Islam. 
he would treat the Muslims very harshly. And then he was, he was so fed up one day that he said, I'm going to go out, I'm going to kill the Prophet. His plan was to go out and kill the Prophet. He had his sword with him. A Muslim who was undercover caught him along the way. He said, Omar, where are you going? He said, I'm going to kill this Muhammad guy, I've had enough. This person, he's making jihad. It's a jihad that he made. He said, why don't you go see your sister first? She's a Muslim. He was like, what? My sister's a Muslim? He had, that was a sacrifice he had to make, you know? He sent him off the course, sent him to the sister's house. He goes to the sister's house, they have the whole interaction, he hits his sister, she, he, he, his heart changes because of that. He says, show me what you're reading. SubhanAllah, like how sometimes like in really intense situations, people's hearts change. And he said, show me what you're reading. They showed him what they're reading. He said, where is Muhammad? He said, I want to go to him. But what did Hamza say? My point in all of this was Omar wasn't the only one who was strong. What did Hamza say? When Omar came to the house and he knocked on the door, and the people inside the house were like, Ya Rasulullah, it's Omar. And he has his sword with him. Hamza said what? Hamza said, open the door. If he wants good, we'll give him good. If he wants bad, we'll cut off his head with his own sword. <laughs> Someone's going to take that clip out of context for sure. But he, that's what he said. That's what he said. And then Omar comes in. And the Prophet says, in some narrations, the Prophet grabbed him. He said, Omar, is it time yet? Like, when are you going to get your... Get it together. And Omar said, Shadu an la ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah Then what did he do? He went and knocked on Abu Jahl's door. <laughs> the number one enemy of Islam. This is the first thing he did. First thing he did. He went and he knocked on the number one enemy of Islam's door. Abu Jahl is happy to see him. He thinks he's an enemy too. Right? He says, Ya Omar, welcome, welcome, welcome. He says, Shadu an la ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah like that was, at some point, there has to be Isa. Right? What did Omar say when he went to, to, to make Hijrah? Everyone else went quietly. You know, they were, for whatever reason, not because they're not blameworthy for what they did. People had to make decisions based on their own circumstances. These people were strong. Even the ones who were tortured, even the ones who did things secretly, they did things for a reason. They were strong. Right? But Omar had different circumstances. And some people said, actually, I'll tell you after I say this. Some, uh, Omar's circumstances were different. He went, to the house, he went into Mecca. He told them. He said, whoever wants their mother to cry over them, and whoever wants their wife to be widowed, and whoever wants their children to be orphaned, I'm going to Medina now. Come and stop me. Some people said, why did Omar do that? Because he knows there's other weak people, in, not weak like bad sense, but people who can't do that in Mecca, who want to leave Mecca, they can't leave. When Omar does that, they, see, they can just join him. Now they can join Omar, they can go with Omar. And a couple of them did, subhanAllah. So like there's a, at some point, I said, alhamdulillah, we have what we have. There's nothing like what we have. I, I really, truly, 100% believe that. 100%. You know, and may Allah not test us in our lives, but this is, uh, I don't even know why I'm saying all of this. We didn't take it from the Hindus. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> if there's good there, we'll take it. But like, it's not based on it's not based on someone else's thing. And the spiritual development piece of it is extremely important. It's extremely important. And it was always a part of it. As we've said a bunch of times now, you know, it was always a part of it. Uh, the liberation of Jerusalem from Salah al-Din is very closely connected to Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, It's very close. It's not like distant, like Salah al-Din had a, had a wird, he had a litany from Shaykh Abdul Qadir that he used to read. Not necessarily directly from him, but like it was, it was his litany he used to read daily, he never missed it. Right? So like these things were, it was part of it. When the, when, the, um, when the armies went to fight the crusaders in Mansura in Egypt, right? and Shaykh Abdul Hassan al-Shadri was with them. You know? It wasn't just like everyone, the Mashaykh were there. Al-Izzah bin Abdul Salam was there, Abdul Hassan, Sayyidina Abdul Hassan al-Shadani was there. Abdul Hassan al-Shadani radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa nafa'allahu bi. His Hizban Nasr, his, like a dua that he made to be used in battle, was part of that. That is this part of how they, how they went to battle. You know, so the spiritual piece of it is extremely important. That's my point. Like, you're not going to win a battle. How do we win as Muslims? What did Omar tell the early Muslims? 
He said, have taqwa, have consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you're giving your victory by Allah, not by you. And if you're committing sins and you're doing things that are wrong, then Allah won't give you the victory. So you tell me the spiritual side of it doesn't matter. It's just like we're going to figure out how to organize things and put stuff together. Do all of that. But do all of that with uh, a sincerity and integrity with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then he mentions here the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, which is not actually most likely a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that when the person acts upon what they know, Allah will give them knowledge that they don't know. When a person acts upon what they know, Allah will give them knowledge that they don't know. Most likely from like a hadith studies perspective, it's not a hadith. But it's attributed to Sayyidina Isa actually, it's uh, attributed to Prophet Jesus. And the scholars will quote it all the time in their books because there's a truth to it. It's definitely possible for something to have a truth to it and not be from the rigorously authenticated hadith. When you read our tradition, this is very clear because the scholars will use not as rigorously authentic, authenticated hadith all the time because the meaning is true. So it uh, can still be the case. All right. Uh, so, the sign that a person, their knowledge has been put in the right place, uh, and that they're doing something about it appropriately, is that you see from them al-ishfaq you see from them al-ishfaq what is al-ishfaq? shafaqa like they have a concern for people they have a concern for people this is how you know if their knowledge increased subhanallah look what he's saying this is not uh, how do you know? If, because their concern for the people increased who has the greatest concern for the people? The Prophet No one has any concern for the people that comes anywhere close to the concern of the Prophet for the people. That's why he kept his dua. Every Prophet has a dua that's answered. I kept mine for the Day of Judgment, the Prophet said. Because he knows this is the best time to use it. The Prophet said, the example of me and you is like a, pe is like a campfire and the moths keep coming and throwing themselves into the campfire and the person is trying to, I'm trying to stop them from doing that. You know? That he would cry, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he would say, Ummati, Ummati. Right now, in this moment, you think there's anyone on earth who has more concern for what's happening in Gaza than the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? There's not. This is a living reality. The Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, has concern. That's why, like I told you before, I think it was here. when the people of Algeria finally got their independence from the French. Which, like, a lot of these things happen, but we just act like it never happened. It's not that long ago. Like a million people. They say it was the war of a million people, a million shaheed, the Algerian resistance to the French. A million, not like... And, and, and by the way, like, Algeria and Morocco, these are regions in Islamic history they're known for the strength of the people. Like big ulama, big awliya. This is a difficult thing, right? A million people. They say when, when the French finally were gone, that the people went into the street, they said, Ya, ya Muhammad, alf mabruk alayk, raja al-jazair ilayk. Look at there. They said, Ya Muhammad, 1,000 congratulations to you. Muhammad, Algeria came back to you. So how do you know that a person's knowledge has increased? Their, their concern has increased. They care. Allah forgive us. Allah forgive us. One of the things I think that's amazing out of what's happening is that you see, subhanAllah, the Muslims are alive. 
you see that the hearts of the Muslims are alive. You see it, there's no doubt. And you look at it, you're like, the, the khair, the good in the ummah of the Prophet them is always remains, it always remains. And the increase of the knowledge is by following. Okay? Following the example of the Prophet them, following the example of those who have come before us. And as long as the person increases in knowledge, they increase in their fear. And as long as they increase in knowledge, they increase in humility. They increase in humility. One section and then we'll close. والأصل الذي ثبت به في طريقهم التزام الأمر بالمعروف والنهي عن المنكر بالصدق وتقديم العلم على حظوظ النفوس والاستغناء بالله عن جميع خلقه سبحانه وتعالى There's a point here that's a little bit heavy It deserves to be thought about although it might make some people uncomfortable. He says the foundation that they remain steadfast on in their journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that they encourage people to what's good and they discourage people from what is bad with integrity. Meaning that they themselves are trying to do the things that they're telling other people to do. They themselves are trying to do the things that they're trying to tell other people to do. This to me, by the way, is the most important thing in parenting. Most important issue. Like if I want my kids to be alive and right and, and reflective and all of these things in their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I have to do that. Not I send them to learn from somewhere else and I go and do whatever I feel like. No. And then to prefer knowledge over the desires of the self. Prefer knowledge over the desires of the self. Sometimes there's something we know it's the right thing, and we want something else. And I have a choice to make. Am I going to prefer what's right, or am I going to prefer what I want? It's a choice. It has to be made. But what is it that get them further in their journey to Allah? Is that they prefer what is right. And the last thing is, الْإِسْتِغْنَاءُ بِاللَّهِ عَنْ جَمِيعِ And to suffice themselves with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, over everything in creation. Over everything in creation. Sometimes we have moments in life, that's always the ultimate truth. We have moments in life sometimes where that's really clear. Like, I really don't have anything else. There's really nothing else I can do. But I have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that suffices me. The point that needs some reflection is this statement of Ibn al-Jawzi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. It said that Ibn al-Jawzi, when he would have his majlis, a hundred thousand people would come. Mi'ati alf. hundred thousand people. Can you imagine the scene? <laughs> and Ibn al-Jawzi is gathering, what would happen? He would give his thing, people would get riled up and stuff. And then if someone made tawbah, obviously men, not the women. But if someone repented to Allah, they'd shave their head. It was like, some, like they're starting over. Maybe that's one of the wisdoms in Umrah, right? You're starting over, you shave your head. So, you take away everything. So, uh, anyways, 100,000 people used to attend. It says, وَكَانَ النَّاسُ يَسْتَعِدُّونَ لِحُدُورِ دَرْسِهِ قَبْلَ يَوْمٍ أَوْ يَوْمَيْنِ وَيَسْتَأْجِرُونَ الْأَمَاكِنِ لِذَلِكِ That they would, they would prepare to attend his class a day or two in advance. And they'd rent space for it. You know, like his thing is going to be here. I'm going to like rent this spot. I rent that spot. They like get their spot two days in advance. Ibn al-Jawzi is going to speak. SubhanAllah. Uh, so one time a man came to him. He said, He said, last night I couldn't sleep because I was so excited to come to the gathering. Last night I couldn't sleep because I was so excited to come to the gathering. You know what he told him? He said, لِأَنَّكَ تُرِيدَ الْفُرْجَةِ وَإِنَّمَا يَنْبَغِي أَنْ لَا تَنَامَ الْلَيْلَةِ 
die uit die mensen merkt. It's actually really interesting what he said. He said, you weren't able to sleep last night because the thing that you actually want is that feeling of relief. It's that feeling of relief. And if what you wanted was actually right, then it would be tonight that you don't sleep because you're thinking about what you heard. Do you understand what he's saying? Sometimes we do religious things not for the religious thing. We do it because it takes a little bit of the edge off ourselves. I feel a little bit less guilty. You know? I feel a little bit less this. I feel a little bit less that. Some of the books, they talk about how some people do that when they cry sometimes. It's like they'll come to the gathering. They said it's blameworthy. They come to a gathering and they cry. That why? Not because the crying is the problem. Because they cry and they think they did what they needed to do. It's like, no, they needed to act upon that thing that made them cry. That's what they needed to do. The crying wasn't the goal. The action was the goal. So you're saying, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited. He said, what you're supposed to do is not sleep tonight. <laughs> it's very harsh, of course. Like Maybe that's not the way that we should talk to people usually now. But it worked for him, obviously. I mean, like thousands and thousands of people were in the gathering. So it worked. All I'm saying is we should think about this. Like, am I doing it because this is what I should be doing? Am I doing it because there's a something for myself in it? That's why, as we said many times before, one of the early Muslims, he said, the only thing I like better than um, when my dua is answered, when my prayer is answered, is when my prayer isn't answered. Because then I know that what Allah wants for me is different than what I wanted. And now I didn't get that thing, I got what Allah wanted for me. It's different. So I prefer that even over my own prayer being answered. SubhanAllah. Anyone have any comments or questions or anything you would like to share before we have dinner? Allah bless Marcus and Obeid, mashallah. They've been uh, working hard over there. Yes. Um, so in like pursuit of kind of like attaining um, what's the remedy for cowardice? Hmm? What's the remedy for cowardice? Wow. In the pursuit of trying to seek this honor and this strength and stuff, what's the remedy to cowardice? That's a good question. In general, we ask that Allah doesn't test us. And we don't seek to be tested. And, uh, and a person never knows how they're going to respond until they're in a situation. You know, so don't make any, there's no claim in what I was trying to say. Uh, when there's a situation that comes up and we have to have courage, and we know that we have to have courage. But there's this feeling inside of us that doesn't necessarily push us towards that courage. Sometimes things look like bravery, but they're not bravery, by the way. They can be recklessness. They can be a lack of desire for the world anyways. Like, you know, some people are really courageous because they just actually don't want to live anymore. It's a different thing. It's not necessarily the same thing, right? But I think that Usually, if there's something that we have to exercise courage for, there's an internal thing that's happening. And there's a little bit between like, okay, I should have courage on this thing, and that's the principle. And I do have this fear that's inside. And I think that part of why we train ourselves to overcome our feelings and our desires in many different ways throughout the day is so that we can always make that capacity stronger and stronger and stronger so that when we face situations that we really don't want to do them we don't worship ourselves it's going to happen everywhere else like when I sit down to eat there's a level of courage that's involved right? there's a certain desire and that desire has to be defeated 
when I'm dealing with people, when I'm dealing with family, when I'm making decisions in my life, I'm doing all of these things that I'm doing, there's courage that's needed. And if that courage, if that strength of, of, of overcoming the self and recognizing, okay, this is a selfish desire and I'm going to overcome this selfish desire, then hopefully when another situation comes where our self is also calling us to do something, we'll have the strength to overcome it, inshallah. But again, you know, I'm not making any claims. Uh, you don't know it until it happens. You know, may Allah, if we're faced with situations where we have to make courageous stances, may we make them. And may we be strong and may we rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of it will come in the coming pages of the text actually. You know, how does a person have this, they have to have this, they have to have this, they have to have this. So some of it will come. But may Allah help us to overcome ourselves. Anything else? As a reminder, no session until December 9th. No session until December 9th after today. 10th. 10th? I read my calendar wrong. 10th. Okay. Uh, well, not yet. During the week this week, we have class. Tuesday, Wednesday, yes. After Wednesday this week. After Wednesday. Then, or actually after Thursday. Believing together. After Thursday. So starting from the weekend. Nothing for three weeks, inshallah. Yes. That's a good question. So you're saying that some teachers would tell you that um, you're here for a limited time when you're in Egypt, so focus on the tools. So what would you say to someone who's here, for example, they're busy with different things, how do they do this? So here's the thing. The life of the student is not necessarily the life of the person, like the regular person, everyday person. The, the goals, like the hadith, the tafsir, the Qur'an, all of these kind of things are actually really important to us in our daily life. Because what they give us is a regular reminder, and they give us kind of like an entry point into the culture of being Muslim. I need to know all kinds of things from the hadith, I need to know all kinds of things from the Qur'an. So if I'm not a student, like, it's okay to be in those things. Like, yeah, we're going to have Qur'an, we're going to read certain things, we're going to know. Um, all I would say is that if a person wants to learn, they should just know that that's different. This, the, the, the posture of that is different than coming and taking benefit. Coming and listening to something to take benefit is one thing. And that's like a general benefit. Maybe Sunday class, you know, hopefully. I, I generally try to explain things in a way that hopefully gives some of those tools you know like we could just come and give really exciting lectures about whatever stuff that makes people feel good usually you know what that stuff is you could just come and do it and everyone be excited and like woo and then fundraise afterwards you know <laughs> but you could do that but it's not really like i don't like to do that so part of why we read the text is to try to bring those things out as we read it you know but if a person wants to study, then they should do it more. Uh, that's why we started the seminary, you know, as a shameless plug. That's why we, studied the se we started the seminary, so that people can study in a more organized way and try to build those tools at the same time that they build foundational knowledge. Um, but also recognize that like a lot of the higher level tools that we're talking about, if you don't study the Arabic language in a deep way, there's a limit to what you can do because a lot of those are really the Arabic language. Like Arabic language and usul fiqh and all this kind of stuff. You can only do so much of that in English. So if someone's looking for like the real, I want to be able to just go to the Quran and really benefit and like derive rulings and stuff like that, can't do it without Arabic. But with some practice, people can listen to, like if a person has some foundational knowledge and they have good examples and people of knowledge around them, then inshallah when they come to the Qur'an and they read it, they'll be able to take the things they can take from it. They won't be able to take other things, but they'll benefit. And they'll be able to know, okay, I can understand this, I can understand that. And, but uh, studying all goes together. 
So one of the things I would warn people of is it's very common I've seen in the Muslim community this idea of like, well, what's, why is this relevant or why is that relevant? Or like, I didn't like that class because I didn't see what the benefit was. That's not a standard for anything, actually. You know, sometimes you don't understand the benefit of something until you see it later. You don't understand the benefit of like XYZ class until you go and you read the hadith and you realize that those classes are actually helping you to better understand the hadith. And you're like, oh, I get it now. But yeah, there's a little bit of patience that's required. So uh, the short answer to this would be that a person should study in a structured way. Rather, you know, attending things is good. Like I said, you know, we have to attend things. We need reminders. But studying in a structured way is not the same. Inshallah, Allah give us tawfiq. Anything else? Anything else? Should we have dinner and enjoy our merriment and company? Yes. That's a good question. I'll repeat it. The uh, question is, if there's any good resources on like understanding the place and role of non-Muslims in Muslim societies. Because when we're talking to people and you talk about how Israel is an apartheid state and you know they have different laws for Jews versus non-Jews and all of these kind of things. And some people bring up stuff about how, well, in Muslim lands, you had this idea of dhimmis and different rules and stuff like this. Uh, I'm sure there's stuff that's been written in English. I'm not up to date on it. Sheikh Fuad might know. Sheikh Fuad sometimes knows these things better, especially because he's in the academic world. So, like, there's always things that are coming out, and um, I'm sure there's good things that have been done. But most of my knowledge in these things is like 10 years old at this point. So, um, and it's forgotten and old. But uh, so I'm not. I'm not sure. But just off the top of my head, there's a couple of things to just think about. Number one is that when we, very common for people who speak modern Arabic, they think, they th when they hear the word dhimmi, which is the term for a non-Muslim in a Muslim state, they think that it comes from the word, they think it has like a, like a negative connotation to it. And that's not actually the meaning of the term. The meaning of the term is the same as like in the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, where he said, uh, uh, that the one who prays Fajr in congregation They're in the dhimma of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala It means what? It means they're, they're, they're in the protection of Allah They're in the protection of Allah Actually one teacher we met, one shaykh I saw him do it he, his, he, We were in his house and his son wanted to take the car and go out This was in Cairo And uh, the son was like, Baba can I take the car and go? And he asked him, he said, did you pray Fajr in Jama'ah today? And he said, yes. And he said, here's the keys. And because the person who prays Fajr in Jama'ah, then they're in the protection of Allah. So you can take the card. Go ahead, Bismillah. <laughs> it was very, I was like, wow, subhanAllah, that's some next level stuff. So, Dhimmi is not someone who's being looked upon negatively. Dhimmi is someone who's under the protection of the Muslim state. Okay. Second issue is, why would you distinguish between there are things that seem to distinguish between like a Muslim and a non-Muslim in a Muslim state maybe they should wear this, they should not wear this, these kind of things right? why would you do that? there's a difference between when you distinguish between people so that the law can be unfairly applied to one and not to the other that's the issue right? in apartheid states and all this kind of stuff what was the issue in the Muslim state? is that there are certain things, in many cases, there are certain things Christians are allowed to do, Muslims are not allowed to do. So if it's clear that you're a Christian, it's actually to your benefit. Because you can, you can do this thing, Muslims aren't allowed to do it. You can go into the store in your neighborhood that sells alcohol and buy alcohol. A Muslim can't do that in a Muslim state. So there's, it's not always that, sometimes things are seen to be a certain way, but it's not always that way. Uh, I'm sure there's, People have written good things on this, but I don't know. Tell me, sorry.
I think we should uh, break, inshallah. Uh, Shireen, how's it looking? Good? Should we pray first? Good. Let's pray, Aisha, together. And then right afterwards, we have dinner, inshallah. Bismillah. Subhanakum bihamdik, tashadu wa na'ina, astagfirullah wa tubi indik. Allahumma inna nasalika al-huda wa tufa wa al-afafu wa al-ghina. Namastunna bisatrika al-jameel, namastunna bisatrika al-jameel. Allahumma inna nasalika al-afu wa al-afiyah wa al-mu'afat al-daima fi al-dini wa al-duni wa al-akhirah. ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا هذاب النار ربنا لا تزن قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب ربنا آتنا من لدنك رحمة وهيئ لنا من أمرنا الرشد نصر من الله وفتح قريب وبشر المؤمنين اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وزقنا تباعه وعنا باطل باطل وزقنا سنابا اللهم زقنا حسنا خاتما اللهم زقنا حسنا خاتما اللهم اجعل آخر كلامنا لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله عدل كمال الله وكمال يذكر بكماله سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المسلمين الحمد لله رب العالمين. Assalamu alaikum. How are you, Abdul Rahman? How are you? Uh, after Salah, can I please ask you some questions? 